Um, today we are reaching the end of our series that we've been in all summer, exploring the one another phrases in the New Testament. I know the summer is one of those times where sometimes you're here, sometimes you're away, so hopefully you've been able to catch some of this series. You can catch up with it um, online if you want to. But these, um, these phrases have been, I don't know if you've, if you've been with us, I don't know how you find that. I've found these phrases to be, um, and they're so short, <laughs> but they are incredibly challenging and they're often quite exposing expressions. Um, and I wonder, I was thinking about this this week, I wonder what they have done in you. Have they done anything in you this summer? Has anything shifted or changed in you this summer as you have considered these words? Has anything been transformed in you? Has anything been prompted in you? What desires have risen in you as a result um, of hearing these things? Or in other words, what has the word of God done in you this summer? What has the word of God done in you this summer? We began uh, at the beginning of July with the words of Jesus. And then, as you can see, we kind of traversed the rest of the New Testament and saw what mostly Paul and a few others had to say um, about these things. Uh, And then today, we're back where we began. We're back with the words of Jesus again. In fact, we're just going back a few verses from where we began at the beginning of July. And this passage that I'm going to read to you this morning, I think, I think it's stunning. Um, I think it's really moving as well. So I'm going to read it to us. Um, and if you like, I would encourage you perhaps to close your eyes as, um, as you listen. Um, people tell me I've got quite a nice voice to listen to. So, you know, don't fall asleep. That can happen. But maybe you want to visualize the scene as you listen to it because it's a narrative, it's a story, there's action happening. And maybe you can let your imagination work as you listen to this passage. You don't have to do any of that. You can follow it on the screen. You can do whatever you want. But I'm going to read to us from the Bible. This is from John 13, starting from verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. 
You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let me pray for us. So Father, we come before your word this morning, probably with lots of other things running around our head, but we want to come with expectancy. We want to come expectant that this word is living and active, alive amongst us and within us, and able to do more in us than we could ever imagine. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and bring this word alive amongst us again, alive within us. Let it nourish and feed us this morning. Let it change us. Let it unite us. Amen. A few years ago, I was coming back from uh, a holiday, and it was one of those kind of transferring flights where you kind of you get off the first plane, and then you don't have to go through the whole of the rest of the normal airport, you just kind of go through this separate little security transfer area. I don't know if you've ever been through one of those, they're quite odd. And as we were waiting in this quite small room with a small-ish amount of people there, we began to realize, me and my friend, that there was some sort of commotion going on up ahead of us. And so we started gradually to pay attention to what was going on. And what we saw was this uh, tiny little elderly woman and this like, really, really tall young guy having some kind of interaction together. There was something going on between them. And we were like, what is happening? Like he was kind of taking her stuff and chatting away to her and really, really involved with her. And we were like, is he bothering her or are they traveling together? Maybe he's her grandson, like, we don't know. Um, we had nothing else to do because we were in this tiny room. So we just watched. And the longer we observed, the more it became apparent that they were not, in fact, traveling together. They definitely didn't know each other at all. But what we witnessed was, I think, one of the most extravagant and involved displays of help that I have ever seen. Now, we kind of give ourselves a bit of a pat on the back if we hold the door for just ever so slightly longer for that person, you know, coming up the bottom of the stairs at Central. And we think, man, I'm such a good guy. Like, I'm just holding this door. Don't you worry. Don't you rush. You know, you're totally, you're totally fine. You take your time, you know. At least maybe I, um, I do that. But um, it was, this was not that kind of scenario. He was so involved with her. Nothing was too much. He was helping her understand the security people. He was helping her with her bags and anything in them. He was helping her with her coat. And it was just the two of them. So he was holding up like the whole queue to ensure that this woman got through okay. Everyone else was just standing there watching, somewhat bewildered. The most affecting moment, it was kind of amusing up until this point, but the most affecting moment came when the security workers were gesturing to this woman that she would need to take her shoes off to go through the kind of scanner thing, which is quite normal for a lot of us if we've been in an airport, but for her, she didn't really understand it, and she was clearly a little bit distressed, and um, she wasn't able to understand what they wanted her to do. And I watched as this young guy took this elderly woman over to a chair, 
and he sat her down. And then he knelt in front of her and he gestured to her to ask if he could help her with her shoes. And then we watched as he carefully and gently untied one of her boots and eased it off her foot. Now bear in mind this woman's been traveling for a while, she's just been on a plane. He showed absolutely no sign of embarrassment or inconvenience as he helped her with her other shoe. And then he gave them to her and he helped her up and he walked her over to the scanner and she went through and so did he. And then he helped her pack all her stuff back up again and get her shoes back on and get her coat on. And he sent her on her way and he grabbed his own stuff and he went the opposite direction. And I watched that scene with such fascination and so many other feelings. It was about 12 or 13 years ago now and I have never forgotten it. I felt deep admiration for this guy. You know, it was amazing to watch him and I felt quite a lot of surprise and a little bit of bemusement. And I also felt just a little bit of shame knowing that I probably wouldn't have been quite that extravagant. When they were both gone, in this little tiny room, there was sort of this air of awkwardness. Knowing that we'd all witnessed something quite unusual and very out of the ordinary in an airport in the middle of England. And really quite unsure of how we were to react. Now, why did I tell you that story? Well, I wonder that in the room that Jesus and his disciples were in, there may have been a similar air. A similar air of surprise, of bewilderment, of confusion, and probably of awkwardness as well. The ceremony of washing feet, while unusual to us and maybe something that would make us uncomfortable, was not unusual then. But as is often the case with Jesus, he takes an everyday ritual, a familiar practice, and completely disrupts it. It's not about the foot washing. The foot washing is not the weird thing here. It is everything else that Jesus does around it that rings alarm bells of interruption for his friends. Foot washing would take place as a practice of necessity and hospitality when people arrived at a home because dusty roads and sandals and walking everywhere kind of make for pretty weary, dirty feet. And so kindness and welcome is offering the opportunity for those feet to be washed when you arrive. When you arrive. Did you catch it? When does Jesus wash his disciples' feet? Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress. And so Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and began to wash their feet. Not now, Jesus. <laughs> Not now. What are you doing? Mouthful of food. You're getting up and starting to wash feet in the middle of this and start this whole performance. This is so disruptive. Disruption and interruption of the status quo. He is screaming to them, would you pay attention to what I am doing in this moment, my friends? That is strike one. Secondly, who washes feet? Doesn't take a genius to guess that the washing of dirty, smelly, probably calloused feet lands on the plate of the least important person in that household most likely a servant, and in this society, hopefully, preferably, not even someone who was Jewish. 
It was a lowly and undesirable position. The guests were probably used to barely paying attention to the one serving them in that act because they were not there to see the foot washing servant. That was not who they came to have dinner with. They were, eat, they were there to eat with the master of the house and whoever else was important enough to be included. The person doing the foot washing generally would have been completely incidental, unimportant, their service more noted than them themselves. This moment is painful for the disciples to see. Do you see the place that Jesus assumes? No wonder Peter is appalled. It's hard for them to see him take this position where no one would normally pay attention to the foot washer. They are now nothing but captivated in disbelief by the one who is kneeling before them. All of this screaming out to us, pay attention. Jesus is creating an environment to teach his disciples something that is really important. I think that there are four key things that we learn here and can gain from this passage. And so I want to submit them to you today as we consider how these words can shape us individually and in relation to one another. So four things. I think we see a display of love. We see an offer of intimacy. We see an act of consecration and we see a pattern to follow. A display of love. John's gospel, this, this book that we're reading from, mentions love more than any of the other gospels. It's a key theme for him, and it's a key theme that we see in his later letters as well, probably because it was a key experience for him. He was writing about what he knew. And it's not just any kind of love that John talks about. It is supreme love. It is love in its highest intensity. Love that goes to the limit. We know, because we've been around church for long enough, that that's what Jesus displays to us in his life and in his death. We know that. But the disciples in this moment were seeing it really close. They were seeing it right in front of him. Because when we look to Jesus we see what God is like. That's what Jesus told us. He said in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So when you look to Jesus, you learn a little bit more about who God is and what God is like. So what is Jesus trying to show us here about the nature and the character of God? We learn that God's love and humility knows no boundaries knows no boundaries. Jesus takes on in very literal form here the nature, the attire, the posture of a servant. And that is not the first time that he's done or said that. We read here about him taking off his outer garments and laying them aside. I wonder if perhaps that is a prelude to his death where he will again be stripped of his garments and take the position not of a servant but of a criminal. Or perhaps it's a grander echo of what Jesus came to earth to do and to accomplish and what that meant and showed us about who God is. We read it in Philippians 2, verse 6. Jesus, who being in very nature God, 
didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This disruption, this interruption is putting God's love on display right before their eyes, bringing God's love almost uncomfortably close, showing them what kind of God they follow. Which brings me to my second point. It is a display of love and it is an offer of intimacy. We've spoken already about the familiarity of this activity. It wasn't an out-of-the-ordinary thing at all, but the parameters of this normal activity have all been shifted in this moment. And so we pay attention to that because this invita- the invitation in this moment is union. It's an offer of intimacy. Peter protests, as you would expect, He probably was the only one brave enough to say anything. I would imagine the others were just sitting there in disbelief, not knowing what they could challenge or ask questions about. But Peter speaks up and says, are you going to wash my feet? I don't understand. And Jesus' reply to them, as it often tends to be, is a little bit confusing. He says to him, unless I wash you, you can have no part with me. That's not normally what foot washing is about. So what does Jesus mean here? What is he pointing to? Again, let's look to what Jesus is showing us about who God is and what God is like here. I think we learn that God is an up close and personal God an unafraid of the mess God, which is not unusual language for us to use here. But let me ask you, is that truly the kind of God that you know and that you experience? Is God up close and personal with you? Is he holding your feet, so to speak? If not, what has stopped that? What's changed or harmed that experience of God for you? And what could restore it? Somehow, when it's a stranger, a servant before you, in this case, holding and washing your feet, there's just enough distance for it not really to matter. Jesus does what he always does He dissolves the distance. Suddenly it is their teacher, their rabbi, their friend, their Lord, the one that they love and respect and are devoted to more than anyone else. It's him before them, holding their dirty, sweaty feet in his hands. And not only that, saying, this is how you have participation with me. This is the way. It is an offer of intimacy. It's a call to let God come close. 
And it's a demonstration of a God who is not interested in you cleaning up all the messy bits of your life and tidying up and hiding the stuff that you can't quite figure out what to do with before you come to him. Through this simple action, Jesus is showing his disciples and us what kind of God we can experience. A God whose love is boundless and on full display. A God who offers intimacy and closeness. And the third thing that I think we see here is an act of consecration. Look at the timing. It is just before Passover, which in the timeline of Jesus' life on earth means it's just before he is betrayed and arrested. So this act is one of the very last things that Jesus does before everything rolls into motion. Just like Don was reminding us a few weeks ago of some of the first things that Jesus said, we should pay attention to first and last things. They matter. Maybe you're with me in thinking that Jesus is not actually that concerned about them having clean feet. Jesus has this way of taking very elemental things and bringing significance and meaning to them that completely rewires our understanding. At the same meal that's portrayed in the other gospels, he institutes the Lord's Supper, communion as we call it here, normal bread and normal wine present on every dinner table, suddenly carrying much greater symbolism. The elemental thing here is water. And everything that Jesus has done up to this point, getting up in the middle of dinner, making a point of altering his attire, taking the literal place of a servant before them, all of this is to alert to his disciples in no uncertain terms, I am changing things and I want you to pay attention to me. Water symbolizes so much in the Bible, namely things like cleansing or preparation and consecrating. Hebrews 10, 22 says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Revelation 22, 17 says, let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Jesus had a conversation with another woman at a well one time about living water. And in Ephesians 5, it talks about how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. I could go on and on. It is no mistake that Jesus uses this act of washing with water at this exact moment with these exact people. He is demonstrating to them the act of cleansing from sin that his death and resurrection will enable. But I think he might also have been consecrating them in this moment and commissioning them for a different kind of life with him. Consecration is uh, maybe not a word that we use a lot. I find this graph. You can see big peak around uh, 1845 and then steady decline since then. It's not really that surprising that we don't use it very often because uh, it's not that popular a concept. 
To consecrate something is to set it apart for God. And I think that is part of what Jesus is doing in this moment. He is setting his disciples apart so that, like he said, they can be a part of him, preparing them for the commission that he's going to give them. And my friends, we are a people who are set apart too. We are called to be transformed rather than conformed to the world. Just like Matt was sharing with us this morning, we're called a chosen people, implored towards holiness. Jesus himself prayed that we would be sanctified. We're called temples of the Holy Spirit. We're called new creations. I think as we consider how we apply these words to our lives and to our relationships with one another, it starts by remembering that we are invited to this act of consecration as well. We need to remember that we are set apart and that is not an easy thing. Just like the act of holding dusty and sweaty and calloused feet is not gonna be a first choice, Living set apart lives will be a sacrifice, but one with deep reward. I would choose no other life but this. This display of love, this offer of intimacy, this act of consecration, and finally, a pattern to follow. This is the easy bit and the hard bit. This is where the one anothering comes to the fore. Jesus said, after all of this, that they have seen and experienced, completely bewildered and a little bit awkward, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I have set you an example. Does it mean literal foot washing? I don't know, maybe, who knows? You can work that out with God yourself, but to open it up more broadly, I think it means all of these things that you have seen and experienced, all of these things that you have received from me, you now get to pass on to others and receive from others. You get to display great love to one another that stretches the boundaries that normal love extends to and that isn't just reserved for your nearest and your dearest. You get to offer intimacy and closeness to others, being willing to stand in the mess with other people, praying and believing for beauty in ashes. And here's a slightly more difficult bit. You also get to invite other people into the realness of your own life. You get to live, we get to live a consecrated life alongside others. We get to live consecrated lives alongside one another to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, discovering what goodness and fruit and life and hope and courage can flow from a life that is set apart. Would you dare to live like that? And all of this you learn from Jesus. 
It is his pattern that you follow. No other pattern or rule of life will sustain you. So what will you do with this Jesus who comes and as much as he knelt before his disciples comes and kneels before you and lifts your weary feet and gently cares for you? What will you do with him? Would you protest like Peter? What would you do with him? What will you do with him as he loves you and invites you to closeness? What will you do with him as he consecrates you, bringing cleansing and wholeness and preparation? What will you do with that reminder that you are set apart? How can we be a set apart people again? And whose pattern and influence will we follow? If we live like this in relation to one another, I think bit by bit we will be transformed. Bit by bit we will be transformed. And our church will be transformed. And our communities and workplaces and, and colleagues and friendship groups will be transformed. Why? Because a set apart people chose to live after the pattern of a foot-washing saviour called Jesus. That makes the difference. That's the invitation that you get to respond to this morning. And so we're going to respond together. I'm going to pray for us. And the band are going to come and lead us in worship. Jesus, we, we welcome you to come close to us every week here and for some of us every day. But we don't often expect that to be maybe quite as close and uncomfortable as this interaction was that you had with your disciples. But I want to know that kind of closeness. And I invite my friends to pray the same prayer if they want the same. Jesus, would you come close to us? Would we know you kneeling before us, holding the parts of our life that we are ashamed of or want to hide or just don't know what to do with? May we know you gently caring for us. May we know you loving us. May we know you consecrating us again, setting us apart as your people. And then may we choose again to follow you, to respond to that commission that you've given us so that we can extend the same to one another. We welcome you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way amongst us. Amen.